0: I agree with the premise that auditing is not perfect. I also believe there's opportunities to enhance the business model in a way that can make it a better experience for young professionals, hopefully with the benefit of technology. But I'm pretty firm in my conviction that if the audit profession that we know and love today, with all its flaws, didn't exist. Things would be considerably worse. when we would see a lot more problems, a lot more abuses, a lot more fraud.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And today we're talking with Jerry McGinnis. And of course, as with me always, is David Leary, my co host. David, how you doing?
2: Pretty good, pretty good. I'm glad. Uh, I feel like I've met Jerry in person. I know uh, the accounting twins have been profiling his book. Um, you've met him in person. So it's nice to finally record something with him.
1: Jerry, I'm so excited to get your opinion on a variety of topics, big four, audit quality, the 150 hour roll. We'll see what we get to today. And the reason I'm excited is because I think you might be the most, you are definitely the most most high profile auditor we've ever had on the show. You were the office managing partner at KPMG in the greater Philadelphia area and you have gone on to have uh, a career as a board member, uh, as an educator, as an author, and now you're traveling around the country uh, helping young accountants understand how to succeed in their careers. So welcome to the show. Anything you want to add to that list of experiences? No,
0: not at all. Blake, thank you for that kind and gracious introduction and
1: delighted to be with you today. Looking forward to the dialogue. So on the show, we've been talking a lot about audit quality. And so I'm really eager to get your opinion on the current state of audit quality, given that the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB, recently put out a press release saying that they expect audits for 2022 to have a deficiency rate of 40%. Chair Williams calls the findings, quote, absolutely unacceptable and says audit firms must make changes to live up to their responsibility to investors. I sit here as a CPA, looking at this press release, having not worked in audit myself, I came up a different way, wondering what the heck is going on when the PCAOB says that 40% of of audits are deficient. What does that even mean?
0: Yeah, great question, and definitely a very important topic. Uh, Audit quality is near and dear to my heart as somebody who signed audit opinions on public companies for many years. And I also had a stint uh, before managing partner at KPMG, where I basically ran our audit practice in Pennsylvania and kind of oversaw our service to about 75 public companies, ranging from Fortune 500 down to venture-backed startups to uh, many private companies as well. Audit quality is incredibly important. You know, when we think about how capital gets allocated in our country, how investors and creditors make business decisions. There are many factors that enter into that, Blake and David, but sophisticated investors make use of financial statements routinely to evaluate those decisions. And how capital gets allocated really matters because, in an efficient capital allocation model, good innovative ideas get funded, jobs get created, our quality of life improves. In environments where capital is not allocated efficiently, and there are many of them around the world, it's bad for the economy as a whole. So this is an in interest of vital importance, I would argue, to all Americans. So let's talk a little bit about the PCOB and their inspection findings and that 40% deficiency rate that they're projecting. I'll start by saying I have a great degree of respect for the professionals at the PCAOB and the leadership. Their mission is critically important to our capital market system which arguably is the most robust in the world. And I think most of the people that work at the PCOB get up every day trying to protect investors and do a great job. And they're extremely well-intentioned and diligent in terms of how they go about that job. Their model is arguably a pass-fail model, right? So you, on a firm, either gathered sufficient evidential matter to support your opinion on these financial statements, or you did not. And if you did not, in their opinion, you wind up in part one of the inspection report as a deficient audit, part of that 40% statistic. I just wanna read you very briefly an excerpt from the PCAOB auditing standards. This is from AS section 1015. The heading of that section is due professional care in the performance of the audit. It's just a couple sentences, but I think it's really important for context. And the standard says, The independent auditor's objective is to obtain sufficient, appropriate, evidential matter to provide him or her with a reasonable basis for forming an opinion. The nature of most evidence derives in part from the concept of selective testing of the data being audited, which involves judgment regarding both the areas to be tested and the nature, timing, and extent of the test to be performed. In addition, judgment is required in interpreting the results of audit testing and evaluating audit evidence. Even with good faith and integrity, mistakes and errors in judgment can be made. So that's from the PCAOB auditing standards. I recently had occasion to take a look at one of the inspection reports for one of the big four firms. I won't name the firm. It's not important uh, because they all look pretty similar But the finding of the audit deficiency had to do with evaluating the company's ability to continue as a going concern. And the specific criticism was not enough work was done on the forecasted cash flows for that business for future periods. Now, as a former audit partner, I've signed going concern opinions for multiple public companies. And I can tell you that is a highly judgmental area where a lot of careful consideration is warranted. And yes, testing the company's forecast is an important element of that. Obviously, with a forecast of future cash flows, there are a lot of very subjective assessments and assumptions that are made. And the auditor can and should evaluate those assumptions. But my point is, it's very judgmental. In this case, the PCOB concluded that the firm hadn't done enough work and they gave them a deficient audit. You know, I'm not here to say that was a bad conclusion by them. Maybe they were right. But the fact that they felt in that one area not enough work was done was enough for them to fail the audit. That firm might have done a great job in all the other complex areas of that audit. So I guess I have a little bit of an issue with this pass fail system. I personally would prefer to see a system similar to when we all took exams in high school or college where you could get 100 or an A plus, or if you got a question or two wrong, you might have points deducted. So maybe I deduct five points because I don't think you did enough work on the going concern assessment. If there's a pattern of substandard work, maybe I deduct points in other areas and your overall score winds up being a, a 68 and you fail. But I, I'm not really confident that this pass-fail system is providing the most useful information for investors. I'll pause there because I'm kind of long-winded in my yeah. response.
2: Yeah, Jerry, just, just for insight, for those of us that have not worked an audit, but you, you have to sign off on an audit. Obviously, you're not doing all the work. You're depending on your team to do that. But in the end, like, you're kind of responsible for it. So how do you know if enough work was done on a part or not done on a part, like just at a high level, like what what goes through your brain when you do that process or what were your processes? Sure. So at KPMG,
0: and I'm sure it's similar at most of the large firms, the audit partner was personally responsible for reviewing the work in the most critical and high risk quiet areas. So I definitely had skin in the game and I personally was making a judgment whether or not we had performed enough work. In addition, David, it wasn't just me. Every engagement before a report was issued got reviewed by a second independent partner who had no involvement with the day-to-day work that was part of our quality control system. In addition, we would often bring in specialists to assist us with the work. So I might have one of my valuation professionals involved, for instance, with an impairment analysis. So there's a lot of people involved. There's a pretty extensive review process before opinions get issued. But the reason I read you that excerpt from the auditing standards is the standard I think that's out there now is almost one of perfection. And that's it's hard for human beings to be perfect, right? So um, again, not in any way criticizing the PCAOB, but I feel like sometimes... You know it can create the wrong message like my personal opinion is there's a lot of high quality audits being done and the firms have been never more laser focused on audit quality than they are now i think there's also a lot of professional audit partners that take their job very seriously and fully appreciate the responsibility they have to third parties not just their client investors creditors etc folks relying on their audit report so so we have a situation
1: so we have a situation here where the PCAOB is saying that 40% of audits are so deficient that the auditor should not have issued the audit opinion. That's a Part 1A deficiency. And that's a, right. that's a serious deficiency. I mean, that's a fail, right? And yet audits are up to incredible amounts of professional judgment, right? Like there's no hard... When I look through auditing standards, I don't ever see a hard standard, like a, a bright line for anything, it seems. It's all, it's all up to professional judgment. So we've got auditors on one side using their professional judgment saying, this audit is a pass. Let's, let's issue this, you know, what, unqualified opinion. And then we've got PCAOB on the other side saying, nope, sorry, according to our professional judgment, you didn't collect enough evidence. And they're saying 40% of audits fail in that way. So, who are we to believe?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you summarized it very well, Blake. And I'll just add that um, everything's electronic nowadays, of course. But 10, 15 years ago, depending on the size of the company, I mean, on a typical public company audit, if you had a multinational business with a bunch of foreign subsidiaries, there were thousands of work papers. I mean, we would literally have 25 binders of work papers. And so, my point there is there's an awful lot to evaluate and form judgments on. And again, if an inspector, whether it be an internal firm inspection, which was part of our quality control system, or the PCOB came along and said, hey, we don't think he did an adequate job in inventory. We don't think he did an adequate job on this impairment analysis. Income taxes, you didn't do enough work. And there's a real pattern of substandard work and underperformance. Absolutely failed that audit. But for it to come down to one judgment in a subjective area, I struggle with that. I'd, I'd rather say, okay, deduct five points, give me a ninety-five. But maybe the passing mm. grade is even a lot higher. Like we want excellence, we want rigor. So maybe it's a ninety is the passing grade. But look at the whole body of work. Don't focus on one judgment that may be subjective. Is kind of where I'm coming from.
1: Now you got a peek at some or at an inspection report, but those aren't made public. Oh, so, sure they are. The PCOB
0: they, publishes on their website every inspection they do for all the firms they
1: inspect. Okay. And does that say where the audit was? It positioned? does. So
0: in part 1A, there's a description of the finding and the basis for the PCOB's conclusion. They're not terribly long, it might be two or three paragraphs, but it'll say, hey, in the inventory area, we don't think the auditor did enough work for these reasons. Right. So that's all made public. What's not made public is part two of the inspection report, which deals with the firm system of quality control, unless in the judgment of the PCOB, after a certain period of time, the firm hasn't adequately addressed those quality control findings, and then they will make that public.
1: So that's kind of their vehicle to incent the firms to really pay attention. So it sounds like you're doubting this number, 40%. Do you think that 40% of audits are deficient to the point where the auditor should not have issued their opinion?
0: Uh, I will say that I think more than 40% of audits are not perfect. So what is the standard we're assessing for here? Is it reasonable compliance or is it perfection? And um, reasonable people can debate that. Again, I think the PCOB is well-intentioned. I will say they have set the bar very high in terms of the level of documentation that they're looking for in an audit engagement. Uh, As we get close to football season here, you both no doubt have heard of the great football coach, Vince Lombardi, who inherited a Green Bay Packer team that had gone one and 11 the year before he took over. And in his first talk with the team, he said, gentlemen, nobody's perfect, but we are going to relentlessly catch chase perfection because we'll catch excellence. And that was a great motivator, and his team went on to win some Super Bowls. Um, I think the PCOB is pursuing perfection, and they'll catch excellence. I think auditing has gotten a lot better. I'll give them credit, because I think the auditing being done today is far superior than it was 20 years ago when they came into existence. But I struggle with the bar being set too high. And I worry, frankly, that when they publicize a 40% audit failure
1: rate, is that a fair picture of what's happening? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you look at the numbers they're pushing out, it would seem that audit quality has dropped over 20 years. But you're saying, in your experience, it's gotten better since PCAOB came into existence.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I've been retired now for more than a couple of years, Blake and David. So I may not be entirely current, but certainly during my tenure with the firm, I can tell you that there was a laser focus on audit quality. And it was made very clear to the audit partners that your compensation, your advancement is is the first thing we look at is your audit quality. If you're not doing a good job on the quality front, nothing else matters. So um, I don't think that's changed at all. I still talk to my former colleagues occasionally. I talk to partners at other firms. As an audit committee chair, I work with two national firms and I hear about their experiences with the PCAOB. So I think I'm pretty close to what's happening and You know, I may be a little less than objective, given my background, but I feel like audit firms are working really hard to do a good job.
2: And they have a tough job to do. If I'm hearing you correctly, the PCAOB, it's treating everything kind of equal. So it's not weighted. And I'm thinking of like a restaurant, like restaurants get their food service inspections and they have A, A plus, A minus. Obviously, there's probably some violations where it's an F. No matter what, like there's an automatic F if there's a rat on the counter, right? There's probably an F or something sure. like that. But probably, you know, if uh, something's off, the refrigerator is off a couple degrees or something like that, it, it probably is, it's weighted. And if, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's no it's all it's all or nothing type pass fail. It's pass fail, David. In that if they find one area and arguably it's a, su-
0: a significant important part of the audit where they feel that the work wasn't adequate, that sufficient documentation wasn't gathered they can fail you on that one area. And all I'm saying is, take the whole body of work into consideration. And if in 99% of the audit, I did a great job, but you maybe have a different judgment in this one area that is subjective, take my whole body of work into consideration before you fail me. You know, Blake, I think when you and I were together, we had a conversation about the airline industry. And I said to you that like, every day in this country, thousands of airplanes take off and land safely. But you never read about those, right? You read about the plane that crashed or the, the collision, the bad things that happen. And I mm-hmm. think it's similar in our profession where you know if there's an audit failure, it gets, a, it gets a lot of attention and press, but you don't read about the thousands of audits that get done well and serve an important purpose for investors and creditors.
1: I like what you said about the PCAOB inspections being not pass fail and being more graded, I feel like that would provide a lot more useful information to us. Also, um, you know, David's pointed out in previous episodes of our show that the specific audited companies are not identified in the inspection reports, so there's like no pressure on the audit firms to improve if their clients aren't identified. Uh, The clients aren't going to, you know, clients who are identified as having deficient audits might have a word with their audit partner, perhaps. What do you think about that? So you're right. The name of the, the company
0: being inspected is not made public in those inspection reports. But like as an audit committee chair, I ask my auditors all the time, have you been inspected? And if so, what were the results? And- Chair Williams in that most recent release, if you, if you took a close look at it, actually encouraged audit committees to be asking their firms about their inspection results, about the engagement partners history. Most firms, in addition to being inspected by the PCAOB, have their own internal inspection process where they'll randomly select engagements and test themselves, whether they believe a quality job was done and whether the firm's policies were complied with. So that's another question. You know, audit committees can be asking their uh, their auditors.
1: So there's a few other stats that we've discussed on the show that I want to get your take on. Sure. Um, three three uh, that I'm tying together recently. So the first one we just talked about that was the deficiency rate. Great. Thank you for your perspective on that. The second is that average audit fees have tripled over the last 20 years. If you adjust for inflation, they've a little more than doubled. But at the same time, staff salaries have stagnated when you adjust for inflation, cost of living, that sort of thing. So we have a situation where, you know, I'm looking at these three numbers. I'm saying PCOB says audit uh, deficiency rates have increased. Meanwhile, the audit firms are making more money, double the money, but they're not paying their staff any better. How do we reconcile those numbers? It doesn't seem right.
0: Yeah, great question, Blake. There's there's a lot to unpack there for sure. So let's start with audit fees. So using your twenty year time horizon, I guess that takes us back to two thousand and three. And as you know, the PCOB was created right around that time in the wake of the big corporate failures. We had the Sarbanes Oxley Act, and of course, it took the PCOB a little while to get up and running, but One of the first things they did was issue auditing standard number two, which required companies over a certain size to have a separate audit of their system of internal controls and the audit firm to render a separate opinion. So now we're issuing an opinion on the financial statements and an opinion on the company's system of internal controls over financial reporting. That requirement initially became effective in 2004. I vividly recall doing my first SOX internal control audit of a public company. So, if you go back to 2003, your base year doesn't have the effect of a huge expansion in the scope of the audit. So, in 2004, many public companies saw their audit audit fees double. It varied, you know, de- depending on the size, complexity, global footprint of the client. But I would say anywhere from 60 to 100 percent increase in fees was not unusual particularly because AS2 was very prescriptive and required the auditors to do a very lot of detailed testing. There was a bit of a backlash in the marketplace in the ensuing years, and a couple years later, the PCOB revised the standard. They came out with AS5, which was kind of a streamlined approach to auditing internal controls, took out some of the detailed requirements. Audit fees came down a notch, but when the dust settled, I think it's fair to say that the average public company audit fee had increased by at least 50%. So this is all the way back in 2006, seven timeframe. Now scroll forward another 15 years. Gap is incredibly complex. When the FASB comes out with new standards for revenue recognition or leasing, that requires a lot of work on the part of companies. It also requires a ton of work by the auditor to audit that revised revenue recognition methodology. Every time a new standard comes out, it's a bit of a scope expansion, right? And there's a history here, right? The FASB is generally not taking anything away. They're adding. The SEC is also adding new requirements from time to time. So that all impacts fees. Inflation impacts fees. Uh, An important trend in the last 10, 15 years has been increasing use of specialists. So there's a lot of people that get involved in an audit these days. If I'm auditing an insurance company to get a handle on the adequacy of their loss reserves, I'm going to have an actuary involved in that audit. If I'm auditing an impairment analysis, I might have a valuation professional. Income taxes, very complex for a global company. I'm going to have all kinds of tax experts involved. Those specialists have high billing rates and they drive up the cost of an audit. So as the percentage of specialists involved, and I would guesstimate the typical audit today probably has 10 to 12% of total hours or specialist time, that's driving up the cost of an audit. So there's a lot of factors. I mean, the regulation of the profession by the PCAOB, what we talked about earlier, kind of the bar is set pretty high on what constitutes a quality audit. Firms are spending more hours doing audits than they were 20 years ago, in my opinion. That adds to it. I'll remind you that these are set in a free market system,
1: right? And I've had clients go well, out- Well, it's and- sort of a free market system because we only have four major players. Well, let's talk about that. So I've had
0: clients go out to bid and if it's a good client, guess what? Those other firms are interested in doing the work. Maybe a Grant Thornton's in the mix as well or a BDO. So it's very competitive. I've won new business in proposal situations. I've lost it. But firms compete pretty fiercely for work, and fees
1: mm. are always on the table when there's an RFP process. And that's what I've heard. I, I get no argument from anyone when I say that audit fees are always under pressure, because there's always some partner who will be able to underbid you. And so that's one of the explanations for why staff salaries have stayed low. It's that audit fees are under pressure, and you know if you're an audit partner, the... Only way to make money is to get your staff to work, you know, the longest hours you can to motivate them to work that unpaid overtime and, you know, hire as few people as possible. It's, it's a, that's the game. That's the business model. That's a
0: great segue into the topic of staff compensation. So let's talk about that. When I was leading the audit practice for KPMG in Pennsylvania, I was intimately involved in setting salaries for all levels from new interns up to partners. And I could tell you that I was supported kind of with some firm-wide infrastructure and resources. And we had, I think, a pretty sophisticated, rigorous process on how we did that. For instance, every year we had a market study that was unique to, in my case, Philadelphia. What's the market? What are firms paying? And we would study that data carefully. I may be a little dated, Blake, but during the time I was in this role, I mean, our salaries increased on average six to eight to 10% a year. When people got promoted, there were additional bonuses and incentives. And it wasn't a flat situation. Now, maybe, maybe it's been a little flatter since I retired, but I'm still pretty close to the market. And I believe currently the starting salary for a big four audit professional right out of college in the Philadelphia market is in the seventy-five dollars to $80,000 range. I think that people often miss the value of the fringe package. Now, there are certain things like subsidized health care, 401k contribution that I would say any employer is providing, right? So that's table stakes. But things like um, certain firms have programs where they're repaying student debt. Mm-hmm. most of the big four firms and other national firms, the day you walk in the door as a brand new hire, you get six weeks off. The so 30 days of PTO, fully compensated. You know, I don't know what the average employer gives you as a new employee these days, but I'm guessing it's maybe two weeks vacation. Well, so, with the
1: uh, caveat that you're going to be asked to work a lot of hours- No
0: doubt. that During extra... certain times of the year. No doubt. That extra time off is in part to compensate for the hours in busy season. Yeah. But also, um, in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, most of the firms are shutting down between Christmas and New Year's and paying people for that. Most firms are giving not only Thanksgiving, but the Friday after Thanksgiving. I've seen firms shut down depending on when the 4th of July holiday falls. There's probably a couple extra days there, paid holidays. So um, all those things add up. And um, I would guesstimate, I don't know this for sure, but I would guesstimate if you did a fully loaded fringe rate for the big four firms, it's in the 35 to 40% range. So take that new hire that's making 75000 in Philadelphia, layer on the fringe rate, and that new employee is costing the firm over $100,000 with virtually no experience.
1: I actually think that's pretty fair and pretty competitive. I would agree with you if the hours weren't so terrible for some hires. Now, we don't have data across all staff at every firm, but the ones who are talking about this on online forums and on social media are really unhappy with the amount of time they're expected to work. Uh, And it can be incredibly brutal. I personally would not want to work 60 to 70 hours a week, ever. And yet we expect young people coming out of school to, to do this for years on end for months on end, for years on end. My my argument against it is it's simply unhealthy, that it's asking people to sacrifice their mental health, their physical health, their family time, their hobbies in service of the audit or the firm. And young people just don't want to do that anymore. Right.
0: I think it's a very fair point, and it's a very legitimate issue. It's not a new issue, right? It's an issue the profession has coped with, Since the beginning of time, I think in some respects, that doesn't mean there aren't better, more creative, more innovative solutions to it. And I think technology is a part of that, which I'll touch on. But let's back up and say, why do we have to work 60, 70 hours a week in busy season? And it's basically a function of if you're a public company, depending on your size, you have to file your 10K within 60 days a year end, maybe 75 uh, if you're a uh, smaller market cap public company. 60 days after the end of the period is not a lot of time, right? The company has to close their books, put together their financial statements. The best companies,
1: you know, probably need at least two weeks to do that. Some take longer. And like you said, GAP has just gotten more complex over the years. Exactly. And and so let's say that, you know, by the time you're coming in to do the year-end audit, it's
0: at least the third, fourth week in January, you've got the PCOB's expectations are up here you've got you know, a lot of things to audit in a very limited period of time. And sure, you can do work before the balance sheet date. And most firms do. They do their planning or do a lot of their control testing. They'll do what we call interim procedures. You might audit inventory or receivables as of September 30th and then roll forward from there. But there's still a ton of work that has to get done in a very condensed period. Yep. And that's what drives the overtime. Now, could firms be more efficient? Could they use technology better? I believe they can, but it's not because the firms are just saying, let's work our people to death, right? There's a reason for everything.
1: There's these deadlines. It's a deadline-driven profession. Exactly. Same thing in in tax, Blake. Right. But here's the thing about audit. What do you think about this argument? I think we have, as a profession, done this to ourselves, or the audit profession has created this deadline-driven culture itself because who goes to FASB, who goes to PCAOB, who ends up moving from partner roles or director roles at the big firms into the regulatory roles. It's, it's the same people. So we could change this as a profession if we wanted to. It's accountants on the regulatory side who are setting all of these expectations and deadlines.
0: So the deadlines on um, things like 10-Ks, 10-Qs are set by the SEC. And I'll acknowledge your point that there are some people from the profession that go to work at the SEC, but the vast majority of the SEC are lifetime civil servants who have been there for 25, 30 plus years. And really, they have a commission, five commissioners overseeing them that set these kind of rules. Um, You got to look at the big picture, right? So if you're an investor now, put on your investor hat. Do you want to wait 90, 120 days to see the year-end audit?
2: I mean, time is of the essence, right? Markets
0: need real-time info.
2: But why is this the, the overwork thing happens in Australia? It happens in the UK. It happens in Canada. Like everybody has different timelines of when financials and things have to be done, but the same work culture seems to exist
1: yeah, anywhere I mean, big, have, firms,
2: big accounting firms are at.
1: We have people dying at their desks in extreme circumstances. In Australia, for instance, there's a big scandal going on right there about the work culture. I mean, how, how, how can we as a profession? claim to look out for our people when we allow things like that to happen. And and yeah, that's a rare case, but it's a symptom of a big underlying problem.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm not sure I'm familiar with all the details of the case you're alluding to, but I think it might have involved an employee of a firm in Australia who was working and then went out for some drinks with their colleagues and then came back and they found them at their desk later and who knows what was going on? That's obviously not a good situation, and to your earlier point blake i I think you know, the firms don't want to contribute to an unhealthy lifestyle, right? Yeah, um, the firms, I think, are keenly aware of this issue and they're working very hard to address it. They have that fundamental challenge of the deadline driven business, but I alluded to this earlier. I do think technology is going to help us get better, be able to maybe do more work before the balance sheet date maybe do more kind of online auditing where we're actually getting into the system and looking at transactions real-time on a continuous basis so we don't have this crunch at the end of the year. I can tell you if it's helps you at all, it probably doesn't, but like, it has gotten better from when I entered in the profession. When I started, I mean, the mindset of the partners was, we're gonna do whatever it takes to serve the client, and if that means working 24-7 or all weekend, that's what we're gonna do. When I was running our audit practice and managing partner, we were very focused on kind of quality of life considerations for our people. And we tried really hard to be sensitive to these issues and to make it better to the extent we could. I'm not going to declare victory and say we solved it 100%. We definitely lost people who felt like this is not for me working 60, 70 hours a week. But it's a bit of a journey. And I think Mm -hmm. the firms are focused on making it better. It, It is a legitimate
1: issue. So perhaps if we're going to talk about solutions, we can look to simplification of the accounting standards, because like you said, they've only gotten more complicated. If you look at the past 100 years of accounting standards, they've only gotten more complicated, and financial statements have only gotten longer. Silicon Valley Bank's financial statements were over 180 pages long, and it's hard to imagine any human being reading every set of financial statements for every public company that are issued. I just don't believe the analysts are doing it. And the evidence suggests that they aren't. Uh, a, a set of financials is downloaded from the SEC website maybe a few dozen times at most. So here we are. We're doing all this work to produce financial statements that very few people are actually reading. They may be looking at that bottom line number, that earnings per share, you know, or that net income number. But all this other stuff that we're doing, in between that number, you know, and starting the audit, like, I I don't know if investors actually care. Arguably, they're not
2: even looking at that number because they're investing in Amazon and Tesla and um, Facebook, and none of these companies have good numbers at all.
1: (laughs) Right, well, because, and and that goes to a deeper issue, which is that any business that is based fundamentally on intangible assets as the primary revenue driver is not captured, by Gap, well, because Gap does not understand intangible assets. It's still built on this industrial economy that it was founded on, right? Railroads, factories, we worked great for that. But you know, when it comes to a Netflix or an Amazon subscription-based businesses, it's terrible. Uh, you know, it's the, the thing that people care about with Netflix is subscribers, and we don't track subscribers as a Gap metric. It's all non-Gap metrics when it comes to subscription businesses, and so you know, I. I look at this situation where you got these audit firms working their staff, and it's great to hear it's gotten better. But you know, it's still, it's still, it's still pretty. It can still be pretty bad, right? And and yet, what we're delivering is just not what investors necessarily want or need. And it seemed tragic, you know, that that we've got this massive multi-billion-dollar industry that is is kind of missing the point.
0: So you covered a lot of ground there, and I want to react to multiple points that you've made. Uh, Let me start with a positive kind of I agree with you response, which is, you know, the accounting model for intangible assets, I think, is broken, has been for a long time. I'll give you a great book recommendation, Blake and David. It's called The End of Accounting. Love that book. Trying to remember. the Oh, you've read it? Baruch Lev. Yes, they make some great points in there. And and furthermore, you know, we kind of have a mixed attribute model for intangibles, meaning if I buy company ABC as part of my purchase accounting, I'm gonna value their intangibles and put them on my balance sheet, including things like the customer base. But if I develop that internally, it gets expensed as incurred. It's not on my balance sheet. That makes no sense. That can create real challenges, particularly when you're looking at some of the tech companies like you know, you guys alluded to a moment ago. Again, I'm a product of my experience, so I may be a little biased, but I'll defend audited financial statements as being a useful tool. And I think sophisticated investors do make use of them. If you read some of Warren Buffett's writing, you'll see that he routinely reads every footnote. And that's one of the things he believes has given him a competitive edge and has helped him to really stand out as an investor. Most sophisticated Wall Street investors read financial statements closely and rely on them. Main Street investors don't. I was in a uh, a meeting a couple of years ago where the speaker said, said that roughly 400 people assembled, has anybody in this room made an investment in the last year, whether you bought a stock or a bond or you invested through your 401k plan? Every hand in the room went up. He then said, how many of you read the audited financial statements before you made that investment? And one or two hands went up. So relevance right. is an issue. But I think if we had a system where audits weren't required anymore, it would become the wild, wild west very quickly. There's a d- deterrence factor from auditors and or yes. from audits. And the other thing you don't see behind the scenes is what about all those financial statements where material adjustments are made as a result of the audit before the financial statements go out? or the auditor does give the client a going concern opinion, or resigns from the account because there's fraud going on. Those things don't get reported, but they happen more than you would think. So I think our capital market system would suffer greatly if we didn't have the independent function, just a personal opinion.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, we need audits. And this is the tricky part is that we need audits, but the value of them has, is questionable. In many situations, right? Like it could be better. Um, when I, when I look at an audit opinion, and actually, if people aren't reading the financial statements, what is the is they're reading the audit opinion, right? How many people actually read the audit opinion? There's not that much in there that's useful to me as an investor, right? It's well, it's let me, what, what's let me... useful is that I know that the company managed to get somebody to sign off on it, right? Right. That's what I need. That's what I need to know. But that standard. That pass fail standard, like you said, is incredibly subjective, and in many cases, right, it's it's totally false. The company was a going concern warning, or in the case of Wirecard with EY in Germany, uh, they weren't even confirming bank balances, so the audit was completely useless. So for me, just sitting back as an investor, thinking, you know, what does this audit really provide me? It doesn't really. I don't feel like it gives me a lot of assurance because. I I don't get that much information out of it. It's like if if every health inspection report uh, at every restaurant I go to was just pass-fail.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So again, you you laid out a lot there. Um, I'll give the PCAOB some credit here, right? For decades, all audit opinions did look the same, and it was pass-fail, and it was your financial statements are fairly stated or they're not. Right. Several years ago, as I'm sure you guys know, the the PCOB came out with a new standard that required the auditor to talk about critical audit matters and to add language that was unique to each client to their audit report, discussing those most challenging areas, most subjective areas. That was new information for investors that I think differentiated the typical audit report. You know, you referenced Silicon Valley Bank earlier. I'll just comment briefly on that.
1: And that's a great. That's a great thing to talk about in context of the critical audit matters because the question is, I believe it was KPMG that audited SVB. Yep. Should KPMG have issued a critical audit matter about this interest rate risk with these bonds that that SVB was holding at historical costs on their balance sheet when they, very clearly in retrospect should have been written down?
0: yeah. I think the key words there are in retrospect, right? Uh, yeah,
1: hindsight's twenty twenty.
0: I'm not in a position to kind of weigh in on that, and I probably shouldn't, given my former firm's involved. I should probably recuse myself, but I will make one point, because I've heard you talk in some prior podcasts about how the Silicon Valley 10K was 180 pages, and there's so much in there. Who could possibly get through this and figure out what was going on, and all that's indicative of the complexity of Gap. but all you had to do was look at the balance sheet. And it states very clearly on the balance sheet that their health to maturity securities were valued at X. And yep. parenthetically, it disclosed the market value, which was 20 some billion dollars less. You could do that in
1: five minutes. Right. You could, but investors did not. Analysts did well, not. Which and my response indicates... to that
0: is shame on investors and analysts, right? It doesn't
2: take too long to look at a balance but, sheet. But, but the market, the, 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 this is the bigger issue, right? The big firms We are doing the audit. We are there to protect you. We are protecting the fundamental financial markets that we all live in. The whole system. And everybody just assumes you're doing your job so they don't have to do their job. It's like, I assume the fire department knows how to put a fire if my house catches on fire. I'm not, I don't know how they do it. I'm not paying attention to how they do the work. I'm just assuming that's true. And the market assumes this. So you can't really say shame on all of you for not looking at the numbers. They're assuming you're looking at the numbers. Actually, I can,
0: and I will, again. Like, If I'm an investor, I've got a responsibility to evaluate that company's financial performance. It's nice to have the peace of mind, David, to know that those numbers were audited and verified by a third party, but I should still understand what those numbers are telling me, right? What's going on in that business? Do I want to continue to hold this stock? Do I want to buy more? You need to look at the numbers, and not just the numbers, like pay attention to what's going on, what's the CEO saying, what press releases, what new products, et cetera. But astute, sophisticated investors are paying attention. They're not just relying on third parties. I would also take issue with the notion that the audit firm is telling you everything's fine. Like, Read their opinion. What they're telling you is the financial statements are fairly stated. That's not the same as everything's fine or this is a good stock
1: to own. Yeah. But like investors do not understand what that means. Well when when they when they see that a bank got a clean audit opinion, they think that means I can trust these financial statements. That the bank's not going to go out of business a month after the financials are issued.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about investors for a minute, Blake. Now, fair fair point investors come in all different shapes and sizes, right? There are very sophisticated investors out there that I believe are reading those financials, paying attention, making decisions based on them. Then there's what I call the main street investor who has money invested via a 401k plan or maybe just on the side is buying some stocks and bonds. And I would acknowledge they're not paying attention to financials. They're assuming everything's okay. They're probably more influenced by what's on MNBC or whatever they're listening to or watching on social media, or maybe what their buddy told them about the latest hot stock tip, like buy crypto, you know, buy, buy Tesla, whatever it is, right? And that's been going on for hundreds of years, right? Speculation is basically what that is. That's not investment.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I would give them a little more credit than that. I think that they would look... financial statements if they weren't so complicated and so difficult to understand, and you had to have a master's degree and five years of experience at PwC to even understand what this footnote says. It's not written in plain English, and it's very difficult. I mean, I'm a CPA, and when I tried reading through SVB's financial statements, I couldn't make heads or tail of most of it. I had to put it into ChatGPT to translate it for me. (laughs) So I guess I My feeling is that like the audit profession, the accounting profession, the CPA world has kind of lost sight of our mission. It's not to protect big financial institutions, it's to protect investors. And when most investors are Main Street investors these days, you know, like why were we created? Why Why was the audit profession created? It was because of the Great Depression, right? And you know who got hurt in that? It was everyday people. And I, I just I feel like we've gotten so wrapped up in all of these intricacies of of gap where it's it's so complicated. You have to be a specialist in just one balance sheet line. You can spend your whole career just doing one thing on the balance sheet. That just seems messed up to me. You know, like it just seems like we could be doing a lot better. We could simplify things and and make financial statements useful to people. So
0: again, I'll, I'll react, you covered a lot of ground there. No argument gap is complex, and perhaps in certain areas unnecessarily so. Over the years, the FASBs had different projects to simplify their standards. I'm not sure they've made that much progress in that regard. I think they keep getting more complex, Right. but in fairness to them, Blake and David, business is complex, right? And some of the products that investment bankers come out with are increasingly complex, sophisticated. They have derivative instruments. Is it debt? Is it equity? So some of these rules that are written are written to address the evolving business landscape yeah. where new products are coming out and we need to figure out how to account for them. Like I agree with you on intangible assets. We need more guidance there. But you know, as the economy continues to evolve, Gap needs to keep pace
1: and and, you know, I'd love to simplify it, but it's hard because business is not that simple. I want to come back to the, one other thing real quick. Well, I just mm-hmm. want to just the complexity thing, right? The problem with yeah. the complexity is that smart people can use complexity in gap in the tax code, to basically do what they want, to to make the numbers come out how they like it. And that's what I've, my takeaway, I'm, I'm reading the uh, the big uh, book about Enron, right? <laughs> right. And, and my huge takeaway from the whole Enron era that whole that whole thing is that basically uh, if you know what you're doing you can manipulate the numbers to get what you want because it's so complex and people don't understand it and so if we simplified accounting standards and went back to our roots if we took a radical approach right we might actually clear things up uh, you know like so are you suggesting we go back to cash basis well i guess i what i'm suggesting is that we we like SVB is a great example, right? The, the problem with SVB is that I could decide as, the, uh, as people running SVB, if I want to hold those bonds at cost, or if I want to mark them to market, and it's all based on my discretion, essentially. I can choose, uh, and it's based on my intent, and it's all very ambiguous and gray. And many accounting standards are that way, where I can manipulate the numbers and it's hard for my auditor to question that because it's a matter of my judgment and it's a matter of their judgment and it gets all very squishy. And so maybe we take accounting standards back to something that's more hard and measurable, right? And if we're not going to do that, then at least we make it more broadly principles approached and not so rules-based. And then we give auditors, you know, more freedom <laughs> to, to actually exercise their professional judgment yeah. I mean, it's it's the current situation just the path we're on is a path where we're going to keep making accounting standards more and more complex and they're going to provide less and less useful information and FASB is just obsessed with these like lease accounting was the most useless thing that ever happened. Uh can you can anyone defend the lease accounting rules? It doesn't add any value to investors. I've never heard anyone say that it creates any more value, but it adds tremendous cost <laughs> for businesses, you know. So and, so, this so, is an
0: important discussion, right? Yeah. I mean, the standard setters have an important responsibility and an important job. They also have a complex job. You know, what you're really getting to at the core here is how much regulation do we need or should we have? I probably lean a little bit to the right, but you know, I ask my students at Rowan, I'll, I'll purposely ask the question this way Is regulation a good thing or a bad thing? And I'll get a bunch of students that'll jump up and say, regulation's horrible, it's bad for business, we shouldn't have any regulation. Then I'll get others that say, we need regulation to protect abuses, et cetera. And I'll say, well, you're both right, right? But what's the right amount of regulation? That's the fundamental question. Most reasonable people would agree we can't let people run wild and be totally unregulated. And I think a lot of people would subscribe to too much regulation is bad. So let me flip it around and ask you guys a question. Do you think we have too much regulation in the accounting profession today, whether it be the SEC, the FASB, the PCOB? Or not enough because you read, referenced things like Wirecard and Salkan yeah. Valley Bags. So what do
1: you guys think? I feel like we've gotten lost in the weeds because there are so many rules. Like This is just my take as an outsider, because there's so many rules, it's so complex. It's easy to lose sight of what the purpose of the audit is which is not to tick and tie but is to actually determine to protect investors you know are these financial statements accurate are they you know can we can we trust them right to provide that trust in the space and you know SVB is a perfect example of how we did not protect investors now whether that's our fault is another question because well I, I think I, it's also you know, a
0: fair question, Blake, whether SVB was a business failure or an audit dip.
1: Well, and couldn't can't audits shouldn't audits anticipate to some extent well, like audits, a collapse auditors of don't an have institution. Crystal
0: balls. They can't predict the future, right?
1: Now they are No, but interest to- rates started rising twelve months before SVB collapsed. There were oh. there were at least four reporting periods in between when the Fed started aggressively raising interest rates and when SVB went under. And those were all opportunities for the auditors to point out this rising risk. Yeah. And they didn't.
0: Well, and I'm sure they were aware of it and they may well have evaluated it and they may have concluded that we think the company's gonna survive. You know, a lot of companies face major issues that their existence is threatened by, right? But a lot of times they survive. So that's a great example of a judgment was made you could come along after the fact and criticize that judgment with the benefit of hindsight and people love to do that but you weren't sitting in the chair real time trying to make that decision and by the way certain information came to light after that opinion was issued right the failure to get the capital raise done etc so all I'm I'm saying is you know it's hard to predict the future for anyone and auditors mostly are reporting on the past but they do have that responsibility to consider is the company going to continue in existence?
2: I mean, I I can't answer your question. If there's too much regulation, there should be less or any of that. But I think we're going to start getting natural experiments telling us what the world's like for people that don't get an audit. I think the accounting shortage is going to cause small townships, cities, counties that can't get their financials audited, but they need to get a loan or they need to to issue bonds and they're going to do it without audited financials. And then the next one is Fortune 500 companies. I mean, that auto parts store, right? They, they had to delay their financials because they couldn't get accountants, right. either internal on staff or an audit. So I no. think we're going to get natural experiments that's going to tell you what the market really thinks about the value of an audit. Right. I think you're and, right and about Maybe that one that of these solutions,
1: and, I, I was going to throw this out there, Jerry, can I get your take on this? Right now, we require you know, 100% of public companies to get audited every year. Maybe one way that we solve this and doing a little experiment is we say not every company gets audited every year, that a percentage of companies get audited. And that way we can spend our time focusing on fewer audits, right? But doing higher quality audits.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting uh, proposition. I don't see the requirement that publicly held companies get audited changing anytime soon. I mean, that kind of exists in a mini way today in that if you're a privately held company, let's say you you have a great strong balance sheet, you don't need any bank debt. So there's nobody requiring you to have an audit because the SEC doesn't require it, the bank doesn't require it. There's a lot of private companies that don't have audits. Some voluntarily choose to have audits. I, I guess if I had to summarize this conversation, guys, for the last 20 minutes, I would try to do it like this. I agree with the premise that auditing is not perfect, much like my airline industry analogy earlier. I also believe there's opportunities to enhance the business model in a way that can make it a better experience for young professionals, hopefully with the benefit of technology. But I'm pretty firm in my conviction that if the audit profession that we know and love today, with all its flaws, didn't exist things would be considerably worse. Then we would see a lot more problems, a lot more abuses, a lot more fraud. What sort serve a major deterrence factor? Just the fact that the client yep. has to get ready for the audit and knows somebody's coming in to look is huge. If you took that away, I think there'd be a lot of abuses.
1: And Jerry, I'm totally with you on that. And I really appreciate you uh, standing firm under fire. We asked tough questions on this show. And man, you, you know, like we made you, you defend are, the whole audit industry. Yeah, <laughs> twenty I mean, years of practices. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't give you quite the heads up that we were going to do this. It just happened. And um, I really appreciate you taking this on. Um, I, I. I just want everyone to know, you and our listeners, to know that I'm a big proponent of accounting as a career. I'm a career changer myself. It changed my life, and I still think that even with the long hours, a career in the big four is great. Uh, There's so many opportunities in accounting for everybody, and you are out there explaining how to succeed in the accounting profession with your book, Advice for a Successful Career in the Accounting Profession, How to Make Your Assets Greatly Exceed Your Liabilities. Jerry, do you have a top tip for young wannabe auditors as to how they can succeed in their careers?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Blake, and thanks for bringing up the book, maybe I'll just briefly mention to your audience that the, the catalyst for writing the book was um, when I retired from KPMG, I got involved at a local university called Rowan University, kind of helping out on a volunteer basis to support their accounting program. And you know I did a couple of things, gave guest lectures, got involved with their accounting advisory board. But one of the really fun things for me was to get to meet a lot of the students and the university was kind enough to give me an office awesome on campus so the students sort of figure out you're there and they wander into your office you know how can i get that first internship should i take the cpa exam what about public versus private accounting so a lot of great conversations with like dozens and dozens of students and one day I met with a student we we're talking about should he take the cpa exam the 150 hour requirement and They left my office and I thought to myself, gosh, I've had this conversation like dozens of times now. Maybe I should try and put down on paper some of the advice and counsel that I'm trying to share with these young folks in a way that could be leveraged a little bit broadly. So that's kind of the background on why I wrote the book. It wasn't financially motivated or anything like that, just trying to create a resource for this next generation. So, to answer your question, like advice for a young auditor, I mean, honestly, Throughout the book, I tried to give advice in a variety of areas for any young person starting a business career. So there's there's a chapter in the book that's called Have a Value Creation Mindset. And in there, I talk about the fact that every day, every interaction is an opportunity to create value for the people you're interacting with, whether that be your client, your colleagues, a third party. A lot of young people today, they have a task orientation mindset. Let me make up my to-do list and get through these eight or 10 things I have to do, kind of almost like a robot, right? Don't get me wrong. It's great to be organized. It's great to have a to-do list and prioritize it. I do it every morning. But as you think about those tasks, what can I do to make make things better for whoever I'm serving here? If it's an audit client, you know, maybe it's not just blindly executing the audit test, but maybe it's sitting down with your client afterwards and saying, can I share a couple of thoughts about your processes and systems here and the way you're using technology? Have you thought about how to optimize the use of the data that's being generated by your accounts, payable, disbursement cycle, things like that. So that's just one small example, but really the book
1: has a lot of those type of tips and suggestions. Everyone should give it a read. We'll have the link in the show notes uh, where you can buy it. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, check out the description for the link to the book. And Jerry just didn't write a book. Like, Jerry is like, like he's a man of the people. Like, it, it's very, it's, I could
2: see somebody just who just stumbles upon this. Like, oh, great. It's another typical old 60-some-odd-year-old white guy that was a partner in an accounting firm. But no, Jerry's out there going campus to campus to campus. Filling up auditoriums, talking to students. Like he's a man of the people. He's out there. What I'd love to see, Jerry, now that after you you go on tour, you I mean you're, you're like uh, Taylor Swift. You're on your tour, right? Going everywhere. Like when you're I'm done. I would the economic love to... impact,
1: Dave, at the Taylor Swift <laughs> Multi billion dollar economic impact, as That's we discussed not true, on the show. Because
2: you're going to push people into the firms and big firms with nope. billions of dollars of impact over this. But what I'd love to do after you get all this knowledge from all these young people is write the other part, the second book which is for firm owners and partners, how they should be treating young people. Mm. That would be the, well, the second that, half you know, of know, That
0: might be a really good suggestion, David. I My uh, publisher has asked me if I want to do, if I have anything else in mind. So that might be a good topic. I will share with you very briefly that um, one of the things I'm doing in this next phase is I'm serving as an advisor to an accounting firm here in the Philadelphia area called Century. And they're having a lot of growth and success. They don't do audits. They don't do taxes. They're more mm-hmm. an advisory firm. But they've also got a great culture and so some of the things we've talked about on this podcast like not working your people to death they're very good at and they can do it because they're not doing audits they don't have a lot of those same deadlines but it's been a lot of fun working with them and kind of seeing what they're doing and before we sign off i do want to say one other thing if you guys all bear bear with me um I've become a regular listener to the Accounting Podcast. Thank you. I really enjoy the show. You guys cover a lot of ground, but I want to say that it's great that we have people being provocative and challenging the status quo. I think that's good for our profession. Keep asking the hard questions, keep pushing, keep challenging, because that's going to make us better.
1: Thanks so much, Jerry. It's been an honor to have you on the show. It's been a privilege, a pleasure, and I hope to see you around again soon.
0: Thank you guys for having me. Have a great
2: day. Thanks, Jerry.
1: Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark.